We're going to be starting in verse uh, 13 and then going on into chapter 4. And this is uh, God's word to you because he's your protector. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he uh, consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God To the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things, uh, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray uh, that your word would be what uh, Jesus says in this passage, um, food to us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So would these words uh, come from your mouth and by your spirit, would you apply them to our lives? That uh, you would teach us both um, about our enemy, about temptation, and about ourselves, Um, but also about our Savior, the one who's defeated the devil and defeated evil, the righteous one. Lead us to Jesus, and um, I pray that um, your spirit would be our teacher as we go through your word now. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, So we are uh, looking this morning at this Jesus' famous encounter uh, with the devil, the tempter, it says in this passage, uh, where uh, the devil tries to lead uh, Jesus in uh, to sin. And, you know, it's always been kind of odd to me if you read about this passage, you know, theologians throughout history talking about it is this great confrontation between the Son of God and the, the, the you know, Satan, the devil. And yet, you know, you read it and it's like, well, there was three questions and three scriptures, you know, it's kind of seems a little anticlimactic, you know, I thought it was going to be a great war, a great confrontation, and, and yet it's just uh, three offers, three questions, and Jesus says, gives three scriptures back to him, so, it's so subtle. And uh, yet what that says to us is that um, as we think this morning about temptation in our lives, temptation is subtle. It's not going to be this big, obvious battle. It's going to come in very, uh, in a very calculated, 
very subtle manner into our lives. That's how the devil works. And let me just say, you know, some of you might be here and I'm, we're reading a story about the devil tempting Jesus. And you might say, really? Is that, you really believe in a devil? And um, all I can say is that Christians throughout history have said that there are um, three things that are um, drawing us to evil. The world, and by the world, it doesn't mean the earth or the universe. It's the world is the whole kind of structure of, of human culture is drawing us to evil. You know, it's causing us towards sin, but also our own flesh. The world, the flesh, our own sinful nature, but also the devil. That we live in a world where there is an intelligence. There is a, a personality, a mind that uh, is bent on our destruction. And let me just tell you, uh, if you've struggled, if you've had uh, sins in your life or uh, temptations that you've wrestled with, you know that they seem to be so tailored to you uh, that there must be a mind and intelligence behind it. And um, so what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at um, the tactics of the tempter. And uh, what I want to do is just, uh, I'm going to look under three, three headings. Uh, these observations about, uh, about temptation, the occasion for temptation, when does it happen? When does temptation at its strongest, uh, most concentrated, come to us? The occasion of temptation. Second, the nature of temptation. And third, uh, the escape from temptation. And actually, I've got a bunch of sub-points under these. I think this is around 11-point sermon total. So uh, brace yourself. You've got to follow me along, okay? Follow with me. I'll try to... Try to hammer through them. Um, but uh, three, three headings, and the first one is this, the occasion for temptation. When does uh, the tempter, the evil one, um, concentrate his attacks against us? When is he most calculating? And in, I think in this passage, we see that we'll especially experience concentrated temptation when we receive our identity and when we receive our mission. When we receive our identity from God and our mission from God. And so first, when we receive our identity. And you see this in verse 16. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Um, Here is one of the great moments of Jesus' life. He's entering into his ministry. And his father comes, a voice from heaven comes and speaks over him this word of love. This is my beloved son. This is my son that gives delight and pleasure to me. This, uh, my son gives me pleasure. That's what God says about Jesus. Um, it's a powerful moment, and it is right after this, right after God speaks this word of love, this, this, this is who you are is when the devil comes. Uh, This is when the devil's frontal attack comes immediately when Jesus hears about his father's love. And um, what this shows us is that our most severe periods of temptation are going to come usually after we have times of spiritual awakening. And so, you know, some, many of you have probably experienced that. You know, you went to a conference or a retreat or you went to camp and you, you got away and you got to think about God's love and focus on God's love. And you say, I'm, I realize who I am. I realize who God is. And then you come back and all of a sudden it's just crash. <laughs> what happened, you know, what happened to this, this excitement and this uh, exhilaration and, and joy? 
And, um, and I think, you know, that, that may even happen for some of you as you come here and um, you're hearing about grace for the first time, that God deals with us uh, according to his grace. He's, um, he's slow to anger. That all of our sins are forgiven in Christ. We stand righteous before God in, in Jesus. And there's so much joy in the gospel. And yet, simultaneously as I learn these things, I find struggles. I find um, opposition. Why is that happening? Why are those two things going together? And the reason is because, of course, that's what the evil one's going to do. Right? You know, Jesus says at the end of this passage, he calls the devil Satan. And Satan, it's the word, is, uh, means the accuser. Uh, the one who accuses us, the one who, uh, who challenges our identity and God's love for us, um, who tears, you know, that's what the, the devil is, the, uh, the, the diabolus. Uh, he tears apart, rips apart relationships. And because what, um, um, what we see here is that at the center of the universe is this relationship between the father and his son, Jesus. Right? That's the basic Christian belief. The most fundamental Christian belief is that God is not one, but God is three. There's one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. And that before even the universe existed, there was this community. There was this family of a Father, a Son, and a Spirit. There was love. There was relationship. There was joy. There's a dance, this delight, this transparency. And, um, and this, this is the most fundamental thing about the universe and about reality is this relationship of a Father and his Son. And the devil hates it. When the devil hears the Father speaking love to his children, to his Son... It infuriates the devil. He wants to destroy it. He wants to tear it apart. There's a, a jealousy and a rage and an anger that it invites. And so when God's doing that to us, pronouncing on us our identity, this is who you are, um, we are opening our, we are becoming vulnerable to his attack. And, um, you know, this little phrase about God speaking to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, I, I can't pass over that without saying at least a few words about um, I think the application that that has for us for parenting. Um, you know, here is Jesus that is getting ready to do his calling in life. He's getting ready for his ministry. And the thing that prepares him is God's pronouncement of love and delight over him. And I, Doug Wilson actually has made a few observations about just this little passage. Is that Jesus is getting ready and, and at Jesus' baptism, we see that his father was present. His father was present there. And not only was the father present, but second, that his presence was felt. Right? The Holy Spirit comes down. He could actually, Jesus felt his father's presence. Third, that his father's presence was made known by speaking. The father was present, it was felt, and he spoke to his son. He named, you are my beloved son. But also, the father, fourthly, spoke his delight over his son. Uh, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I, I would just say, I, I think that our children, when they are born into our families, the biggest question they are asking us is, do I make you happy? And especially to a father, do I make you happy? Even more than, will you provide for me? Will you care for me? You know, will you teach me? Uh, will you protect me? Will you give me food? The deepest question is, do I make you happy? And what that means is that one of the most powerful things, especially as fathers, is not just to be present in our children feeling our presence. The way they feel their presence is when we say to them, you 
bring joy to my heart. I, I love being your dad. You are a delight to me. You are a treasure to me. You, bring, you make my heart sing. And that these are the biggest questions that as we send our kids out to a calling and we shape their identity, these words that you are a delight to me are the thing that prepare them for what God has made them to do in the world. And, um, and I'll tell you that I know that some of you are here and you have not had fathers who spoke that way to you. And maybe they said even the opposite. And what that means is that your, your task in life then is to be diligent to find out that your father in heaven is a different kind of father than the father that you had on earth. That he is a father that speaks delight over his children. He sings over them. And as you begin to embrace that, as you begin to hold that in your heart, and, and that begins to thrill your heart, you're going to even feel a, a, a shyness about that, that God can actually, God actually delights in me, that I give God pleasure, I give him joy. That's going to be uncomfortable for you. And as that begins to thrill your heart, you just need to know that then Satan is going to try to destroy that joy and that thrill in you. So it is when we um, receive... Um, our identity from God, when we receive the good news of who we are, when the gospel takes hold of us, that is going to be the occasion when the evil one is going to attack us, and he's going to rip it apart, he's going to be the accuser. But second, um, it's also when we, not just when we receive our identity from God, but when we receive our mission from God. And, um, you know, one of the things about this passage that the first readers, you know, Matthew was written to Jewish, either Jewish people who are thinking about becoming Christians or Jewish people who just become Christians. And it's screaming allusions to the Old Testament. Let me just, especially this little phrase where God speaks to Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, it's quoting especially two important passages from the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah. Uh, one is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So on the one hand, this pronouncement is saying to Jesus, your mission is to be the king. You're going to be king of all the nations. And then the other part of it comes from Isaiah 42, though, which is uh, the descriptions of the suffering servant in the Old Testament. Um, and this is what it says. Uh, Behold my servant, whom I, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so what this pronouncement is, God is pronouncing to Jesus what his mission is. You are the servant king. You are the suffering servant who's going to die on the cross, and yet you're the king of all the nations. You're going to draw all the nations. You're going to be the king of the world. This weird um, you know, combination, this paradoxical com combination. And he's saying, this is what your mission, this is your calling. And it's when he receives his ministry and his calling uh, is when the devil attacks him. And um, what, ha what that means is that the same for us. When we begin to commit our life to serving Jesus, that my life is about God's mission and what he's doing in the world, that I have a calling to proclaim God's love, to show people the love of Christ and to announce the gospel to my neighbors and people around me. When you take that on, that mission becomes central in your life. Uh, you will be attracting uh, the, the attack of the evil one. And... Um, uh, 
you know, this, this was one thing that caught me kind of off guard as, uh, as a, when I was, first became a Christian. I became a Christian, and I, I went to this church, and, uh, you know, I was part of this youth group, and they had this big uh, uh, retreat thing for the youth that was led by the youth. And I had just become a Christian, and they actually asked me to lead this whole thing. I'd never even been on it. I'd never helped serve on it, and they wanted me to lead the whole thing. It was this kind of great moment, and... I, I got to serve, and it was at the beginning of seeing that, wow, you know, maybe this is a part of my life is ministry and, and leading people and teaching the Bible. And um, it was many months of preparation, and this, this retreat was a big success, and everyone, you know, people really felt loved and engaged. Immediately after, I mean, was by far the darkest time and the biggest crash of, of, <laughs> of my spiritual life ever since I've been a Christian. I, I, it completely caught me off guard. And right when I thought, I'm, I'm excelling in my Christian life, I see that I have a ministry, temptations just surrounded me, and they crushed me. And um, the fact is that when you begin to serve God, temptations will become concentrated and stronger. Trials will become stronger. And you see that it's fascinating uh, in this passage that this temptation, though, even though Jesus is starting his ministry, it's not primarily the devil's idea that Jesus is going to be tried, that he's going to be tested, right? What does it say there in chapter 4, verse 1? Immediately after his baptism, God speaks on him, and then it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit is leading him into the wilderness to face this trial, this temptation, to be tested. And um, this is God's way with his servants, If you are a servant of God, he is going to send you into the wilderness to be tested, to be tried. He's going to surround you with, he's going to, the devil is God's servant, which is an amazing reality of the Bible. They're not equal opposites. You know, Jesus and Satan are kind of equal opposites, not how it is. God is sovereign over all, and he even uses Satan for his purposes. And and so, um, that's part of how God makes his servants, is by sending them into temptation and trials and uh, I read a quote by Winston Churchill. He says this, Every prophet has to go into the wilderness. He must serve a period of isolation and meditation. This is the process by which psychic dynamite is made. Soul dynamite. If you are going to be able to speak honestly and powerfully into people's lives, you must go into the desert. God will try you with temptations. And um, so, um, the occasion for temptation, when does it happen? Actually, mo- in its most concentrated form, c- comes when you are beginning to receive your identity from God, that you are loved by him, that you're a child, and also when you receive your mi- mission from God. When you begin to serve him, you're going to face opposition, okay? So, that's the occasion. But second, I want to explore the nature of temptation, what does temptation look like? When, it, when we face temptation, what does it look like? And I think a couple things in this passage that are interesting. The first is that temptation is not simply spiritual. Temptation is not spiritually, simply spiritual. You see this in uh, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. <laughs> he was hungry. He'd been fasting. He's getting ready for his ministry. And he was alone. He was tired. He was hungry. These physical realities made him uh, vulnerable uh, to temptation. And uh, when we are physically weak, 
these physical realities are going to cause us to be more vulnerable to Satan's attack. Now, some of you might say, well, you know, Jesus was fasting. Wasn't isn't he supposed to be weak? And he, he took on the devil when he was weak. Shouldn't I be able to do that too? If I'm hungry or tired or if I'm fasting, shouldn't I be able to take on the devil? No, you're, you're not Jesus, <laughs> okay? Uh, that's, we're going to come back to that, that we're not Jesus. And actually, Jesus is going to say later in Matthew, what's he going to teach us to pray to God? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. We want to avoid these confrontations. Jesus had to take on the devil. But we want to avoid them. We don't want to walk into temptation. We should ask God to not lead us into it. And um, what that means is that temptation will use your physical and and even your social situations um, to uh, take advantage of you. And let me just say, one of the obvious applications of that is what that means is that if you're struggling with temptation, if you're struggling with doubts, you know, your thoughts are all crazy, you're feeling down, you're feeling attacked, you, you might need a nap. <laughs> you might need a good night's sleep. You might need to eat some vegetables. It's, that could be it. You might need to be around some people. You know, there's a great, uh, quote, Martin Luther has a great quote somewhere where he talks about, you know, when the devil's attacking you, you should go have some beers with your friends and laugh a little and have a joke. Be around some people. Get out of your head. Don't be alone. Eat some food. Laugh. Be human. Probably the best thing that you can do is just be human because when we're most attacked, when we're alone, we're in our head, things are spinning, get out and just do something that's human. And, um, and people are an important part of that. You know, I, I very early on in our church plant, when we were meeting downtown in this little uh, auditorium called Bay, and uh, when we had our first Sunday morning service, um, the, the week before, we used to meet in the evenings, and I would tell the church, you know, there was just maybe, I don't know how many of us, 30 people, hey, I'm, you know, we're getting ready to start launch the church, launch our Sunday morning worship service next week, and I'll just, I just want to tell you all if you could pray for me. I, I've been really feeling attacked by the evil one, and he's really been after me more than he has in the course of this church plant, and just pray for me. And I said, all right, see you later. Thanks a lot. And um, just as everyone was getting up to go, some of you know Paul Fredette. He's, a, he's an elder here in the church. Paul stands up, and he says, wait a second. We're not going anywhere. And, you know, we're a Presbyterian church. Presbyterians do things very orderly and predictable, and Paul was not Presbyterian before coming to our church, and I'm thinking, oh, great, what? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? He's not here today, so I can talk about him. Uh, and so I'm thinking, oh, great. What's he going to say? And he said, we're not letting the evil one get our pastor. <laughs> and, but it was a great moment in the church. He brought the whole, everyone sitting in that room, he brought them and he circled them around me. And he put his hand on me. And then he just talked at me. He wasn't, before he even started praying, he just started talking to me, saying, we believe in you. We're behind you. Uh, we're doing this together. God's in this. He was speaking to me. And, and then the, the whole church prayed for me. This great moment that what I needed, the evil one is not something that, someone that I can manage by myself. And the worst thing that we can do is when we say, I, I'm struggling with temptation, I can manage it. I can handle it. No, you can't. Jesus says, first of all, don't be led into temptation. And when you are, you need brothers and sisters. You need people around you. You need to be human. Okay. So the first thing is that uh, the nature of temptation is not simply spiritual. Um, so that means don't, the answers are not just prayer and 
introspection and Bible reading. Those aren't the only answers. There's other answers. Well, I'll come back to those. But the second thing that we see in this passage is that the nature of temptation is not primarily physical. So it's not simply spiritual, but it's not primarily physical either. And um, what that means is that since our temptations will not be primarily about physical realities, they will be hidden to us. Temptations will be subtly hidden. You won't be able to see them. And they're hidden in two ways. First of all, they're hidden under sin. The deepest temptations, the most threatening temptations that we face are actually hiding under sins. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Um, uh, Here, two times. So Jesus gets this pronouncement, right? God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then listen to what the devil says to Jesus. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God. Then again in verse 6, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God. What's happening is he says, if you're the Son of God, you know, man, why don't you make these stones into bread? Or if you're the Son of God, let's go up on the temple and throw yourself down at angels. And you think, you know, the temptation's about food. Or the temptation's about, you know, you know, testing God or something like that. But the real temptation is hidden in, in that little phrase, if you are the Son of God. He is questioning Jesus' identity. Does God really love you is the real temptation. It's not about food. And um, what that means is that one of the things that's very um, important for us to understand is that if you're struggling with recurring sins that keep coming over and over in your life and you can't battle them, the real problem is actually probably not that sin. It's this deeper question of do you really believe that God loves you, that he is a father that will care for you and that, uh, and that delights in you. Do you really know that? And that's, you know, you, it's even subtly just hidden in the devil's phrase, if you're the son of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Let me give a few examples. Uh, first of all, one of the, uh, the most kind of enslaving sins in our culture right now is pornography. And uh, for many people, this is a recurring thing that they can't get over with. And what we think about pornography is that the main struggle with pornography is a lust. Lust is the real problem. But most people who who have really dug deep into their issues about pornography is they find out that there's a deeper question there. Because what pornography gives is a pseudo intimacy, an illusion uh, that I'm in a relationship. And what's usually happened is because I have some past where uh, I've been hurt by people, um, I, I, relationships have um, aggravated me, I've been, I've, and I can't really trust that God's going to care for me, that God delights in me, that God care, cares for me. And so real relationships are, um, are, too, are too scary, are too threatening. And so actually pseudo-intimacy, uh, an illusion of intimacy is something that I can control. It's a relationship that I can feel like I'm in control of. And actually that's a deeper issue that's often going on uh, in an issue like pornography. And so the deeper question is, am I really a son of God? Does God really delight in me? Do I feel satisfied in his delight? And do, can I, can I, do I feel thrilled by that? And what often needs to happen is that the gospel needs to take hold of our hearts is the sin that's underneath. That's the deeper temptation, is that the, the, the evil one is going after. The same thing, you know, if you have, the same thing with something like eating problems. We have eating problems, whether it's eating too much or, 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 not, or not eating enough. 
there's a deep ache in us. I don't believe that God really loves me. And so I, I use food to comfort that, to medicate that. Or I don't believe God loves me and I'm going to punish my body. And so the real issue, it's not lust, it's not food. It's does God really love me? The, the deep temptation is do I believe the gospel? Will I trust God's word or will I believe the words of the liar? You know, just one more example. If you're, if you're a very judgmental person, if you're a very bitter person, the reason we're judgmental of other people, the reason we tear other people down is because we feel insecure about ourselves. So the, if, you just, if you just try to tell myself, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning, you're dealing with the surface. You're not dealing with the sin underneath the sin, which is what the evil one is going after with Jesus. Are you really the son of God? Will God provide for you? Will, does God delight in you? Will he protect you? Will he, uh, will he be with you? Is he a father? And so... Um, Temptation is not primarily physical. It's not just, my hormone's going crazy. It's not, uh, it's not just about food. It's a deeper spiritual question about my relationship to God, and that's why we need the gospel. The gospel is the answer, okay? So, um, so but second, in an almost opposite direction, is uh, that, you know, temptation is hidden under sin, but it's also hidden under religion, Temptations, the deepest, most severe temptations hide under a veneer of religion. And look at this, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the, the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you were the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands uh, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. <laughs> Here's the devil quoting the Bible. Wow. Wow, that's awful pious of you, uh, Satan, to care so much about God's word. And uh, what he's saying, he's actually using the Bible that you're, you can do this sin. You can test God because, look, the Bible says you could do it. This is a Bible. And there is a temptation that we can use the Bible to actually justify our sin. And then when temptation is living under a veneer of, of Bible verses of, or a cover of Bible verses, we're going to be likely... Uh, uh, we're going to be likely to not see the temptation. And, you know, I I do want to say one thing. You know, it's very common in our culture for people to say, uh, you know, sure, you know, the Bible's a great thing, but um, everyone has their own interpretation of the Bible. There's, you know, you have your interpretation. Every interpretation is as good as another. Let me just tell you that the devil is using the Bible, and I think his interpretation is probably wrong. So, uh, one of the things that this tells us is that we need to understand what did the original authors of the Bible intend to communicate by the Bible. We need, there are better interpretations than others. And so we need to do the work um, uh, to avoid wrong uh, temptations of using the Bible. But what this says is that you could, um, um, that there are religious temptations because they're covered up in Bible verses, we become blind to them. And that's why Jesus, throughout the gospel, his most scathing crit- critiques and criticisms come against religious people who believe the Bible, who use Bible verses, who memorize Bible verses. Is uh, that That's so here. Temptation is hiding under sin and it's hiding under religion. Okay? So that tells us that temptation is all around us. And so uh, this leads us to the third thing we're going to talk about. What then is the escape from temptation. What is the escape? What's the way out? And, uh, you know, when I first became a Christian, this was maybe the first uh, verse that I memorized from 1 Corinthians 10. Some of you will know it, that no temptation 
has, uh, I don't know it now. Uh, <laughs> it's because I'm proud of you. No temptation has overcome you except which is common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. I always love that little line that God promises that with any temptation, there is a way of escape. He will always leave the door open. And uh, what is the way of escape in this passage? Well, a couple things. The first thing that we see that there's a way of escape of the word of God in writing. The word of God in writing is one way of escape. And of course, you see that three times when even Jesus, when he's being tempted by the devil, he uses the Bible. Three times he says, it is written. And actually, you know, what's happening there a little bit, uh, you know, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he spends 40 days and 40 nights. And, you know, anyone who's read the Old Testament, that would stir up a picture of what happened to Israel. Israel came out of Egypt, and uh, they spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested by God. And, uh, you know, God had to provide the bread from heaven for them. And so here's Jesus. He's playing out Israel's story and what he quotes. All three quotes come from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the Moses' sermon that he gives to uh, the Israel, Israelite community in the wilderness uh, before they go into the promised land. So, so Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament, and Jesus has memorized these scriptures. He knows them. They're ready. They're in his heart. They're in his bones. The promises of God, the declarations of God, he's memorized them. They live inside of him. And the reason why that's so important for us to have scripture the reason why scripture is a way of escape is because the devil is a liar. When the devil comes after you, he's going to lie about God. He's going to lie about you. He's going to lie about other people. He's going to lie about the church and about his word. He's a liar. And so the greatest defense, the greatest protection you have is the truth. The truth of God's word is your greatest defense. It's very powerful to actually have it memorized. When you have scriptures that you know that are ready at hand, the promises of God are ready, they live inside your body. You know, there's a while ago I heard this NPR um, uh, story about the, the Tanglewood Festival Chorus, which is this choir that I guess is supposedly very good. And one of the things uh, that the director was being interviewed and he was talking about how one of the things that he insists in his choir is that they memorize uh, all the songs, all the, the notes, everything that they're going to do, they don't even get, they're not allowed to have notebooks while they're singing and they're performing. And, uh, and the reason for that is he says when they memorize these songs, the songs actually become a part of their body. I mean, they actually live in you. There is some part, there are some, you know, brain cells or, you know, cells in your body that are actually the song. <laughs> it, it's living in you. And the fact is, most of us, when we're facing temptation, we feel that it's coming out of our body. My body just is prone. It's just drawn towards uh, sin and towards unbelief or towards doubt or towards lust. Whatever it is, my body's just drawn. When you have the scriptures living in your body, your body has a new thing living in it. The very word of God. And that's, uh, that's uh, the way of escape. And, um, and let me just also say that that's because the word of God is, is your way of escape from temptation, that's one reason why it's so important to be here. Because every week, you know, we, we try to read our Bibles, um, and, you know, it's kind of, we're hit or miss. Sometimes we're reading, sometimes we're not. Hopefully we're reading, you know, faithfully sometimes. Uh, but if you're here, this is what God said, make sure you're here. 
this is the place I'm going to proclaim my word to you with his people. It's going to be expounding. The spirit of God is going to apply it to your life. So we need to be here every week, you know? I mean, hey, you guys, Seahawks game going on, you're here. So I, I need to uh, high five. You're, way to go. So uh, prioritizing that I, that's what Jesus says. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. We live on the word of God. And, um, but, um, I'm not going to read that, sorry, let me, uh, but it's not just the word of God in writing, not the word of God here in this book that we need, but also the word of God in flesh is the other way of escape. And uh, Jesus is the word of God. He is the truth of God, the opposite of the lie. He is the truth of God, become a man. And, um, and now, you know, at this point, I've given a long sermon about temptation, and I got to say, everything I've said is not really what this passage is about. <laughs> because uh, the passage uh, is not uh, really about me overcoming the devil. You couldn't overcome the devil. I couldn't overcome the devil. It's about Jesus who has overcome the devil. It's not primarily about modeling how do you face temptation. It does do that. I, obviously, there's a lot of things I think we can glean from how did Jesus fight the devil. Um, but the main thing uh, here, there's something more profound happening. And follow me just for this last bit. This is maybe the most important. Look at verse 16. You get a hint of this here. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming and resting on him. And what all commentators say is that this is an allusion back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, there were the waters covering the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here's Jesus in the waters, and the Spirit of God is now hovering over the waters. What Matthew is saying is a new creation is beginning, a new beginning. And, of course, uh, as you think about that, as we bring our minds back to the beginning of the Bible, we say, oh, there's creations happening again in Jesus. And we say, well, what else happened in the beginning? Well, God spoke a word to Adam and Eve, and who showed up? Satan, the devil. And he tempted Adam and Eve, and he defied, and he said, did God really say that? Right? Did God really say you couldn't eat? Did he really say you're going to die? And are you really the son of God? The whole scene's happening again. And what happened when Adam fell, when Adam ate of the fruit and he disobeyed God, what happened to us? We inherited his guilt, his sin, his alienation from God, his death, everything that he did. We, I didn't even do anything and I just got it. I just received it and, and it was put on me. It was imputed to me. And what that means is that now Jesus is coming as the second Adam. He's now facing the devil again. And this time he's passed the test. This time he's conquered him. This time he didn't believe the lie, but he believed the word of God. And what happens is in the same way that the devil or that Adam's death and disobedience and alienation and sin landed on me before I even do it, did anything, I just inherited it. Now when I believe in Jesus. The Bible says we're born again into a new humanity. And Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. And we now inherit everything that's true about him, his life, his relationship with God, his standing with God, all becomes ours. And that becomes imputed to us by faith because he is the second Adam. 
And this is what it says. Romans 5 says this. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so the question, what is the way of escape from temptation? Jesus says, I am the way. We throw ourselves on the second Adam. And so the answer is don't try to defeat the devil. Throw yourself on him who already has. Let's pray together. Our Lord, I pray that your word would indeed live inside of us. And we thank you for Jesus' victory. That he believed the word of his father. That he is loved and that God can be trusted and that he is the son of God. And that now we share in his victory. Would we experience that in our life, that he is our way of escape? And give us trust and delight in your pronouncement on us as, that you, as you delight in him, that now you delight in us. Would you give us courage to really believe that and to trust in that, even as the devil spits lies at us? So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.